Welcome to the Clovercrest Baptist Church podcast. For more information about Clovercrest Baptist Church, go to clovercrest.com.au. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Have you ever heard something or maybe just seen part of a a photo or a picture and it just doesn't make sense? Much like what I just read out to you then, probably. But then you get to see the whole of the picture or you get a bit more information and suddenly it does make sense. So let me give you the key to my opening statements, those sentences, and I'll read it out again. I think once you have the key... It will make a lot more sense to you. So here's the key. It's kite. Kite. So keep that in mind as I read that again. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Now it makes sense, doesn't it? Just needed the key. All right, let me read another one to you. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason." They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Okay, so these first seven verses from um, the 13th chapter of Romans maybe make a little more sense than those about the kite. You know, at first glance, they're actually quite straightforward. In verse 1, Paul says, Let everyone be subject to governing authorities. And then also in verse 1, and Paul says this twice, Let uh, all authority is established by God. And then he tells us not once, not twice, but three times. He says authorities are servants of God. It's obvious that Paul is wanting to make a point about authorities being established by God and coming under his authority. 
It's actually quite nice and simple. It's very clear. It's black and white. And this series is themed Restored Living. And it's obvious that the way to experience restored community with our civic authorities is to submit to them. After all, they are put in place by God. Except, except what if you're living under a brutal dictatorship or a, a, a corrupt regime? What if, and, and there's very many examples that we could choose from, unfortunately, from history, aren't there? Um, but one that's still in living memory today is Nazi Germany under Hitler. What if you're living in Nazi Germany and your neighbours are Jewish? Do you take your neighbours and hide them? Or do you submit to the authority and turn them in? You know, submitting to authorities at all times, in all situations, that's called the absolutist position, where Paul's instructions here in these first seven verses are taken at face value and they're black and white and used to instruct absolute obedience to the civic authorities. You know, unfortunately, that's the position that many church leaders in Germany at the time, not all of them, but many, that's the position that they took. And so they lent their support to um, Hitler's ultra-nationalist government. And that's the danger in being absolutist in our approach to this passage. We must remember that Jesus is Lord, not the authority of the day. But at the other end of the extreme to the absolutist is the anarchist. In response to authorities such as Hitler... Many Christians have great difficulty in accepting that they must always submit to governing authorities. After all, didn't the Jewish midwives defy Pharaoh when he ordered that all the baby boys be killed when they were born? What about Daniel? You know, prayer was prohibited. In fact, it was punishable by death. Daniel continued to pray. And what about Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, verse 19, and they say to the Sanhedrin, what is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. But the danger in the anarchist position is picking and choosing when to submit and when to obey. And what is the basis on which we will make that position, that decision? You know, such decisions can be easily based on nothing more than our own opinions, on nothing more than our limited experiences, on, um, on the, our limited perspective on events. And, and even, you know, we surround ourselves with, the, with an echo chamber, surrounding ourselves with those who who think and say the same things that we already do, and they just echo back to us what we already think. Now, God is not a God of disorder. He's not a God of chaos or anarchy. And we see that in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. God brings order out of chaos. So theologians agree 
that Paul here is not giving a timeless set of instructions on how Christians should relate to civic authorities. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome and he's setting out general principles for them to apply to what they were facing in Rome. So if there are dangers in reading these first seven verses with either an absolutist lens or an anarchist lens, what is the key that unlocks the context in which Paul is writing? What are the principles that will unlock this passage and give it context for us so that we can make sense of it in our time and place? Well, I want to suggest that there is one principle, one key, just like the kite, that will give us the context for this passage. And to discover that key, we need to start back in chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Now, if we look at verse 9 of Romans 12, Paul starts that section from there to the end of the chapter, and he says this, love must be sincere. And then in Romans 13, verse 8, so following on from those seven verses we just read before, Paul says this, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, if you read these two sections, so um, from chapter 12, verse 9, and you read it to the end, and then you just flow on into verse 8 of chapter 13, Paul has a really good flow going there from one section to the next. But smack bang in the middle, we have these seven verses that Paul inserts about relating to authorities. It's a very strange place for Paul to insert thoughts about Christians and the state. He has a really good flow going of what restored living looks like, going from the end of chapter 12 into verse 8 of chapter 13. Doesn't make a lot of sense until we see the key Paul is using here. As I said, Paul introduces the passage in chapter 12 with love. Love must be sincere, he says. And Pastor Mike brought that passage to us last week where that love is the foundation of restored relationships with other people. And then in, chapter, in verse 8 of chapter 13, Paul continues that theme of love. You know, we could even go back to the beginning of chapter 12 from verse 1. Uh, two weeks ago, Ash brought us that passage uh, talking about restored humility. All of these passages together are known as Paul's love ethic. And there's our key, love. The principle that helps us make sense of Paul's instructions about relating to the government in our time and day is love. Paul reminds us that love is everything. We are to be humble, thinking of others more than ourselves. Love is sincere and is shown by how we treat those, and, and not just those who we like and agree with, but
but those who hate us and persecute us. And then Paul reminds us we are to love our neighbour. Who is our neighbour? Well, someone asked Jesus that exact same question and by way of response, Jesus tells a story, a parable called the Good Samaritan. And you can read that for yourself in Luke chapter 10. I encourage you actually to look that up for yourself. But Jesus tells a story about a Jewish man who was travelling on the road. Excuse me. He's travelling on the road and he was attacked, beaten, robbed, stripped and left for dead on the side of the road. A priest comes along travelling that same road and he sees the man there and he passes by. He keeps going. In fact, he crosses to the other side of the road as he does so. And then a temple worker comes along and he too sees the man and just like the priest, he passes by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan comes along. Samaritans were despised by Jews. They're despised as half-breeds. And he sees the man dying on the side of the road and he stops and he cares for him and he tends his wounds. This, a Jewish man who would have absolutely despised him, he stops and cares for him. In this story, Jesus defines our neighbour as anyone that we come across, that we encounter as we go about our life, whom we have the opportunity to love and care for. Paul reminds us of Jesus' definition when he tells us, love your neighbour as yourself. We are to love everyone we cross paths with and show compassion and care to them. Put simply, we are to love them. All right, I'm just going to hit the pause button there for a moment on that. I'm going to take a bit of a sidestep. And it's a rather large sidestep, so I need you to stay with me on this, okay? Are you going to stay with me? Do you trust me to stay with me? Good, good, right answer. Now, did you know that nature abhors a vacuum? Now, there are no vacuums on Earth. You might tell me, hang on a minute, Roger, what about space? Well, space isn't on Earth. Space is... You know, it's out there. It's out there, it's space. You know, so um, we're not, we're, we don't count that. But even if we wanted to, space itself is not a total vacuum. It's not a perfect vacuum. Perfect vacuums do not exist on Earth. And in fact, they can't even artificially create a perfect vacuum. So nature will always look to fill a vacuum unless you prevent it from doing so. Now, to help illustrate this, I know you've been hanging out to know what's beneath my magic box of tricks here. Okay? There's not a rabbit. What there is, is a glass bottle and an egg. Now, as you can see, this egg is too big to fit into the bottle. Okay? But let's change the conditions here. And I'll try not to set anything on fire while I do so. Right, watch carefully now. There we go. That was pretty quick. You know, most people think, as did I, that that egg is sucked into the bottle. That's not actually the case. 
You see, a partial vacuum has been created inside the bottle. And so that's created an imbalance in the air pressure. The air pressure inside the bottle is less than the air pressure that's outside the bottle. Direction of movement is always from high pressure to low pressure. So the greater air pressure on the outside has actually pushed the egg into the bottle. So I'm sure you're wondering, what on earth do vacuums, eggs and air pressure have to do with Paul relating to authorities and loving our neighbour? Well, as I said before, given the chance, nature will always fill a vacuum with something. And it's the same too with our hearts. You know, we live in a world where we're constantly bombarded with messages. Messages about who we are. Messages about what we should look like. Messages about how we behave. Messages about where we find our identity. So many of these messages that come at us. When our hearts are filled with God's love, there's not an imbalance in pressure. These outside messages cannot force their way in. But when God's love is absent in our heart, these outside pressures will have greater force. Our hearts will not remain a vacuum. If they're not filled with God's love for our neighbour, something else will simply fill that space. You know, what filled that space in my heart was judgment. A number of years ago, I was involved in a ministry and starting to explore my gifts and, and seeing them develop. And then that ministry finished. And I was asking God, God, where do you want me to serve next? I was, you know, a little bit excited, I guess, about seeing the potential of my gifts and where they might go next. And God, where do you want me to minister next? I want to keep, keep exploring. Got nothing from God for 18 months. Not a peep from God about where he might want me to serve next. And then one day, I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. And Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church about spiritual gifts. And he tells the church at Corinth, he says to them, you can have all of the spiritual gifts, you can have them all, and you can be exercising them. But if you don't have love, you're nothing more than a clanging symbol. And you are nothing and you have nothing. You know, a clanging symbol can be very unpleasant. You know, when a, when a symbol is used properly in the music, it adds so much. But when it's not used properly, oh boy, yeah, it's not nice. It sets your teeth on edge, doesn't it? Well, God hit me between the eyes as I read those words in 1 Corinthians 13. I could not miss what God was telling me. I didn't have his love in my heart. And instead, he revealed it was judgment. And God was not going to let me minister anywhere until I had his love in my heart. I was just going to hurt others. And in fact, hurt myself in the process if I ministered without God's love for my neighbour, I would just be a jarring, clanging symbol. Very unpleasant. Setting everyone's teeth on edge around me. 
I wonder if God wants to speak to you today about what is in your heart. Love for your neighbour or something else. It may not be judgment for you, but it will be something. It will be something else that takes the place of God's love. What is filling your heart today? So let's bring this back to Paul. Paul tells us the way to restored living in all of our different relationships, including with authorities, is love. As I said earlier, Paul's not giving a a full-blown theology of relations between Christians and government here. So if the key to understanding these verses is love, how do we make sense of it for us today? As I was praying, as I was preparing, and as I felt God impress upon me that the key is love, I sensed that what God wanted to speak into is about how we respond from where we sit. It doesn't matter if we're an absolutist or an anarchist or anywhere in between. It doesn't matter where we sit. What God wants to speak into is about how are you responding out of where you sit. Is there love for your neighbour in your heart? Or has the vacuum been filled by something else? And that's what you're responding out of. You know, I sensed that what God wants to do today is bring some healing and begin a healing process in people's hearts. Now, I'd like to invite Rachel to join me on stage now. Can you please give a warm welcome to Rachel as she comes up? Rachel shared her powerful testimony last Sunday evening at the prayer and worship night. And as I heard your testimony, Rachel, I just knew that the church had to hear this. It just spoke so beautifully into what I believe God wants to do today. You know, so Rachel, you were a new Christian in a Hindu family. And by the grace of God, some other family members came to faith in Jesus, including your mother. Uh, but then tragedy struck. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Thank you, Thank you Roger. April... Is that on? Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. April 2001, my mother was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And during the nine months when she was in chemo, our relationship, which had become really sour because of my conversion... Uh, it got better. By God's grace, I was able to share the gospel with her. The Lord opened her heart. She was born again. And at my request, she even took baptism from an elderly couple whose house church I had been attending for the last three years, whom I called auntie and uncle. At that stage, she didn't want me to share about her conversion to my father, my brothers, or my relatives. She passed away in Jan 2002, just nine months from the time she was diagnosed. She was 46 at that time. Mm. So your father um, requested and wanted a traditional Hindu funeral for your mother. That was very important to him. And, And culturally, it was right for you to respect him in that too. But not everyone saw it the same way. What happened when this 
Christian couple who you called auntie and uncle and whom you respected found out about the funeral arrangements? Yeah. So for me, the hope of resurrection was so real. And when my father asked me with folded hands if he could cremate my mother, I said yes. Culturally, in Chennai, Christians and Muslims buried their dead and Hindus cremated them. When auntie and uncle found out that I had given permission for cremation, they were very angry, they were very upset, and they said, this just shows your heart. You have backslidden. The Lord has forsaken you, and um, you have given your mother's body to the devil to be devoured. So I was shattered to the core, and um, for me, the Lord was my life. I had experienced that he was a living God. He had revealed himself to me. That's how I was born again. So for me to hear that the Lord had forsaken me meant the end of the world. And in my despair, I just kept crying. Sorry, Lord. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Please don't leave me. You know how much I love you. But then um, my troubled mind just took over. And... It just kept churning and churning. It said, what if my sin was so great that God could not forgive me? What more was there for me to live if the Lord had left me? What future did I have? It'll be better to just die. That seemed like the only option. That seemed the only option available for me at that time. Now those words that were spoken to you brought life, but then God spoke brought death, sorry, but then God spoke words of life into your heart. How was it that you experienced healing from those words of death that were spoken to you? Yeah, so I just kept churning those thoughts again and again in my mind. And suddenly that dark pondering, it was just cut off by God's voice, a gentle, small voice. I knew that voice, it was not my voice. And he just spoke, and he just said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Promise after promise, promise after promise. I cannot even listen the promises that God spoke to me at that time. Isaiah 55 says that God's word will not return to him void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which God has sent his word. And God showed me clearly that he was with me, he was for me, I was his daughter, he loved me, and his love for me would never fail. That gave me hope that gave me a reason to live. God's words of grace silenced the voice of the accuser. I'm alive today to testify that our God is faithful. He's a God full of grace. And even as a new Christian, I knew that I had to forgive them because my heart is God's throne. And my God comes and sits in my heart. He inhabits my heart. It belongs to him. 
I didn't want my heart to be dirty. I didn't want it to be unclean. And I knew that I just had to forgive them. By God's grace, I, God gave me the grace to release them into his hands and to commit them into his hands. So, yes, hmm. God is faithful and God is good. Yeah, thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing with us. Can you give her a hand? Thank you. Thank you so much for your story. And, you know, that, that's the same healing that I believe God wants to bring to people today. And as I was praying about this, I believe that the, the avenue, the pathway to that healing is through both forgiveness and repentance. You know, some of us need to forgive. We need to forgive those who have lived out of judgment rather than God's love in their heart. And you have received wounds from them. Maybe words of death. And God is calling some of us to forgive today and begin the healing of those wounds. Others of us need to repent. I believe God is calling some of us to repent today because we have lived out of judgment rather than God's love for our neighbour. And, and we've inflicted wounds on others and even inflicted wounds on ourselves. We need to expel from our heart whatever it is that has replaced God's love and ask God to fill us again with his love. I believe God is calling some of us today to repent. You know, the healing process cannot begin until we do repent. So let's just enter into a time of response and allow God by his Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts.